Before I begin to today's sermon, I want to acknowledge that it's hard to listen to a sermon right now. It's hard to prepare and preach one right now, especially when we feel anxiety related to the size and the proximity of the Wallbridge fire. Already there's been a loss of life, homes, and structural damage, and reports are that the fire is far from being contained. A few households of our church have reported that they've relocated and others are on evacuation alert. We continue to pray for them and for the overworked fire crews and all the support personnel that it takes to respond to such an event. On top of the emotional drain from combating coronavirus, we now relive experiences of fire trauma. So I ask you to join with me in an opening prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed. It is difficult to have open ears and receptive hearts when our world feels out of control and danger closes in on us. So hear our cries for help and in your mercy, do what it takes to suppress this fire and others like it throughout our state. As we turn our attention to scriptures, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The 1924 Summer Olympics were held in Paris. The United Kingdom pinned its hopes of winning medals on its sprinters in the 100 meters event, most notably famed runner from Scotland, Eric Little. While en route to France across the English Channel, Little learned that the trial heat for the 100 meters was scheduled for Sunday. For Little, Sunday was the Lord's Day and not a day of work or sports or competition. Deeply disturbed by this news, a friend tries to comfort him. It's only a heat. Does it make all that difference? To which Little replies, yes, yes it does. In the story we're about to hear, Daniel's faith is put to the test. Daniel holds a high position of leadership in the authority of authority in the government of Darius, king of Persia. His contemporaries, administrators and roles equal to his and some subordinate to him, become jealous of Daniel's favorable standing with the king. So they try to dig up dirt on Daniel in an effort to smear his reputation. When they can't come up with anything, they decide to set a trap for Daniel. Knowing of Daniel's regular practice of prayer, they form a plan to coax the king into issuing an edict that forbids any form of petition or prayer to any human or God except the king for 30 days. Flattering the king's importance, these instigators convince Darius how such an edict will serve as a good test of his subjects' loyalty and their personal allegiance throughout his kingdom. The story is known as Daniel and the Lion's Den. 
It has parallels to last week's story of Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And it also parallels features of the story of Scotland's famed runner, Eric Little. All three dramatic stories pose a test of loyalty to the state versus personal integrity of faith. More than a hero story, I want to suggest this has something to teach us about the practice and the effect of faith in the midst of a crisis. When Kent, Emily, and I decided to give this title to this series, we were thinking of the challenge of coping with the coronavirus pandemic. Little did we know that living at the edge would also include the edge of another wildfire. One crisis on top of another is disorienting, unnerving, and a test of our faith. From the story of Daniel, we can be reminded what trusting God looks like when the present is threatening and the future is without hope. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word from Daniel chapter 6 by Gail Burson. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. 
When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. At the heart of this story is a conflict of professional and personal jealousy, perhaps tinged with elements of racism and xenophobia. Daniel was in a high office position in the king's court. He was the object of the king's admiration and his colleagues' animosity. People of integrity often face such combative dilemmas. Those who, depress, who despised Daniel attempted to bring a charge against him, but the narrator tells us, quote, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent, end quote. So they set in motion an unavoidable collision between Daniel's commitment to his job and loyalty to the state versus his devotion to God and his integrity of faith. One commentator observed it this way, if Daniel's religion had been a vague religiosity, it would not have provided the opportunity his enemies sought. The accusers find fault with Daniel for not paying enough attention to the king because he made God his highest priority. We might ask ourselves if our contemporaries would know of the importance God plays in our lives, or would they surmise, surmise by observing us that our attention is focused elsewhere? When Daniel's co-workers conspired against him and coaxed King Darius to enact a 30-day law forbidding any form of prayer other than to the king, Daniel faced a decision. Would he end his practice of praying three times a day in order not to violate the new law? Or would he continue his ritual of faith 
despite the threat of facing a possible death sentence. You have to wonder why Daniel didn't consider other alternatives, such as why not simply suspend his prayer time and wait out the 30-day period, then resume it again after? Or why not alter his open practice of praying and do it in a more silent and secretive manner? Like Eric Little's friend, we wonder whether someone said to Daniel, it's only 30 days, does it make that much difference? The narrator tells us Daniel went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The point made here is that Daniel continues to do what he's always done. He does not deliberately show his defiance, nor does he try to hide his practice of faith. He prays with the same frequency and in the same manner as he always has. He does no more because of the new law. He does no less. His faith is at once private and public. Suspending or altering the practice of prayer for Daniel would have been equivalent to putting the king above God. God took precedence over everything. The act of prayer did not get Daniel into trouble. For him, prayer was central to his life, and by it, he maintained his faith and identity. The reason Daniel was known for his excellent spirit, the reason no fault could be found in him, the reason the king trusted him so much, was all due to his habit of his heart, to this habit of his heart. His behavior reminds me of the words of W.E. Orchard, who said, if your acts of prayer are the most regular thing in your life, you will find that they regulate everything else. If the acts of prayer are the most regular thing in your life, you will find that they regulate everything else. Change his prayer life and you change Daniel. He may have lived most of his years in Babylon and Persia. He may have contributed to the development and prosperity of each of these kingdoms. He may have served under foreign rulers and heads of state, but his heart and life faced toward Jerusalem, toward God. Once the charge is brought against Daniel, the king is distressed and realizes he's been duped by his subordinates. He tries every means possible to rescue Daniel, but he's unable to, to do so. Even the king is not above the law. The reputation of details in this story is not insignificant. Three times the conspirators remind Darius that the imperial law cannot be revoked. Three times each day Daniel bows before God, whom he will not deny. The time-honored tradition of law and order was what the Medes and Persians were known for. Daniel, on the other hand, was known for keeping company with his God. The consequence for violating the edict 
is that Daniel is thrown into a pit of lions. A stone is then placed over the opening and sealed shut with the signet rings of both king and nobles alike. Daniel's fate is doubly sealed. There's no way out unless as the king relents, Daniel's God is able to save him, which is precisely what happens. Daniel's opponents had sealed off the mouth of the den, but God sealed shut the mouth of the lions. Pleased with the outcome the next morning, the king issues a new decree honoring the God of Daniel and commanding others to do the same. In the face of adversity, Daniel did not accommodate himself to his circumstances, nor did he relegate prayer to avoid a death sentence. Daniel would rather be with God in a den of lions than be without God behind the desk, behind a desk in the royal palace. It was not only in the lion's den where God met Daniel, they met every day in prayer. Daniel's practice of prayer provided his enemies an opportunity to frame him, but God used that opportunity to demonstrate his God's power and God's provision. The miraculous element in this story, like so many other biblical stories, is not to reinforce the faith of people who already trust God, but for the benefit of those who do not yet know God. The miracle demonstrates God's power and sovereign will. No one knows this more than the king who tried to save Daniel but it was not in his power to do so. The king sees to it that everyone knows that the rescue of Daniel was God's doing. When the United Kingdom track coach learned of Little's decision about not competing in the 100 meters trial heat, he convenes a meeting of the United Kingdom's Olympic Association and England's future king, the Prince of Wales. The purpose of the meeting was to uh, convince Little to change his mind. But the athlete was unmoved in his resolve and said, I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. The committee chair scoffs in reply, Don't be impertinent, Little. The impertinence, replies Little, lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. Another member appeals to Little's national allegiance and says, there are times we are asked to make sacrifices in the name of loyalty, and without them, the matter of allegiance is worthless. As I see it for you, this is such a time. To which Little replies, sir, God knows I love my country, but I can't make that sacrifice. Just at this moment, another athlete enters the room, Lord Lindsay, who that very day had won a medal in the hurdles, and he offers to have little run in his place in the 400 meters, which happens on Thursday. Everyone is startled yet satisfied by this suggestion. The camera then focuses on two of the Olympic committee members who quietly remark to one another, 
Sticky moment, George. Thank God for Lindsay. I thought the lad had us beaten. He did have us beaten, Effie, and thank God he did. I don't quite follow you. The lad, as you call him, is a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever his running from himself. For his country's sake, yes. No, no sake is worth that, Effie. Least of all, our guilty national pride. You see, faith, like integrity, is not what we live up to. It's what we live out. It is integral to our identity. Everything flows from it. What we do with our time, our finances, what our moral compasses, uh, what moral compass we follow, and what code of ethics we live by. Living on the edge of a crisis reveals the substance of our faith. In closing, I would like to make two additional observations in light of this story. First is that God's people are not immune from trouble. Like everyone else who lives in a fire zone or near an earthquake fault line, or whose body is susceptible to organ failure or viral diseases or automobile accidents, God's people suffer and struggle as part of our human existence. These stories from Daniel are not given to assure us of God's deliverance or that a life of practical faith serves as a guarantee for our safety. In these stories, we see that the people of faith are not removed from such trials, but undergo them. Yet in each instance, God is present and meets them in the midst of their trouble and suffering. Ask any of us who make a pastoral visit to someone suffering pain or grieving loss or facing a hardship. And the most astounding thing we hear is the affirmation of faith of the person we've come to encourage. A statement like this is quite typical. I do not know where I would be without the Lord and my ability to call on God in prayer. My second observation has to do with prayer. Some may want to see Daniel's practice of prayer as a model for our own. Yet nowhere in Jewish law is there any stipulation about the number of times we must pray in a day. The psalmist speaks of praising God seven times a day, and the chronicler describes the Levites who prayed in the morning and the evening. But there is no definitive instruction about praying like Daniel. The important thing is to make it a regular practice. If we are less inclined to pray during ordinary times when life is somewhat calm and routine, then use this time of crisis to give voice to your anxiety and your troubled thoughts. And don't worry about what to say. Simply talk to God like you would have a conversation with someone who's attentive to you and eager to listen to what you have to say. Don't try to make the words sound right. Simply let them come from your heart. 
and don't worry about the shortness or brevity or length of your prayer. The important thing is to make, the con make a connection with God. Unlike the story of Daniel, prayer is not likely to get us in trouble. And prayer may not rescue us from trouble, but prayer will convince us that God is with us and working for our good, whatever the trouble. So be it. Amen.